Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. Hey everyone, our guest today is Mike Michalowicz. He's an author of many books, including Profit First and Clockwork, and he's on a mission to eradicate what he calls entrepreneurial poverty, which is basically, how do you not become a poor entrepreneur, which basically almost every entrepreneur is, especially in the beginning, and we work too hard. And we're going to talk about how to basically make money as an entrepreneur, especially as you're starting your real estate business, and how to work less. This is a great topic, and we're going to get into that with Mike. It's a good one. So stick around. I do want to give a shout out to Alan Wilt. He did give us a, a review on iTunes, which I appreciate. I've been a listener for a few years while on active duty in the Marines. I listen to Michael and Garrett while I run and drive and on my downtime at work. They offer amazing insight and the information is extremely helpful. Alan, thanks so much for sharing your time here. Thank you for your service. I also do me a favor and, and leave us an honest review on Apple iTunes. If you enjoy our content, please give us your thoughts and feedback with a review and maybe we'll shout it out here. We can also use it to improve the show as well. I always have a highlight for anyone doing our first deal. And today is Sean Travis and Matt Brennan. They partnered together on a 76 unit in Pascagoula, Mississippi for 2.75 million. They did work with a mentor, his name is David Camaro. So congratulations for that. And if you do want to do your first deal on a lot of these first deals, tend to be between 50 and 100 units, especially when you're working with a full-time syndicator who is your mentor. You also have access to an entire team of syndication experts. Check us out at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. If you want to jumpstart your career, do your first deal and quit your job. Also, if you have done one or two or three or even a handful of deals and you want to scale your portfolio, then schedule a call with us as well at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. We now have programs and masterminds to help you scale your portfolio. And for anyone who wants to scale and work less and enjoy their entrepreneurship more, then today's episode is going to be awesome. So with that, let's bring in our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? What's going on, Michael? So one of the things we're going to talk about here with Mike is, is basically how to deploy the revenue coming in. So any business has revenue coming in. In our business, we have revenues coming in through acquisition fees, asset management fees. Sometimes there's marketing fees, construction management fees. Also, there's cash flow distributions through the equity. So there's money coming into the business. And the way I thought about it for many years is that I want to build my, my business so that I'm not reliant on having to do more deals, acquisition fees. So in other words, my fear has always been if you bring in a bunch of overhead and a bunch of people, and now I don't do a deal for a year, I don't have acquisition fees, I can't pay my overhead, I have to reduce my force. And, and so historically, that's how we've run the business. And I, you know, you look at other syndicators who are basically just blowing up, you know, and they're doing the exact opposite. They're basically taking almost all their money and they're deploying it and they're hiring all these people and they are dependent on deal flow to fund that overhead. If they don't, they won't be able to pay their overhead. And so talk to me about kind of what your, what your view is on that. And, and maybe I'll disagree. Yeah. So I, I think initially I, I was thinking that maybe we should keep it low to the ground and take on more of the work. But then, you know, we've pivoted our business a, a decent amount to, you know, employ more people recent, more recently even. 
And I'm just noticing the difference, the weight that it, it kind of takes off of our shoulders in, in that capacity, where I'm willing to continue to invest more into that. So some people are going really hard and they're taking like everything and plowing it back in. I don't think all of it should go back in because you should still take some profit as we'll talk, we'll talk about on, on the show. But I think having a healthy balance of being able to find the key roles that would replace a core function of what you're doing as an operator. I mean, that's so important. So recently, as, as an example, we we picked up one of the last hires we made actually was an acquisitions associate. And that guy has taken, given me so much time back. He's doing so much of the work that I was doing that I, I'm just like, man, what was I doing without this guy for so long? So I think anytime you can find yourself in a position where you have really good A players that you can hire using your acquisition fees or, or fees that come in through the business, I really like that idea. It's been my experience over and over again that there's always resistance to bring on a person because you can't afford it. And this could be when you're first starting out is simply bring on a virtual assistant, $30 an hour for 10 hours a week, that's $300 a week, 1200 bucks a month. I don't have that kind of money. And so you, you delay and you resist and you delay and you're resistant. And when you finally do it, you overcome your fear. It's like, it's like lights out. Your life is like, you're like, oh, why did not not do that long time ago? And and we we see it at you see that at every single level in the business. You're talking about the level we're at right now, and I agree. I I think we're finding more of a balance. Should you deploy all your acquisition fees so you have a million dollars per year in overhead that you can't fund if you don't do a deal in a year because the market isn't conducive? That's a problem. But on the other hand, there's people who are doing it, have done it, and they're just blowing it up. I think, like you said. What we're finding is a little bit of a balance. And what we're talking about on a show today is how should you, what kind of profit margin should you build into a business and when to take it out? Should you take it out now? Should you take it out later? And that's definitely a conversation we have with Mike McCullowitz. And this guy has had lots of successes. He's built four multi-million dollar companies. He sold two of them, one to private equity, another to a Fortune 500 company. But man, this, you know, as they say, it was a, it was a, an overnight success, you know, decades in the making. And so because he was so successful early on by his own admission, you'll hear in the show, he's, he was very arrogant and, and ignorant at the same time. And, and because of that mindset, he lost his house, his entire fortune and launched 10 failed businesses and experienced years of depression. Right. So it's not like his, his entire career was just one giant success. And this shaped him as it, as it did me and also Garrett as well. And so since then, he's spent his time addressing and eradicating what he calls entrepreneurial poverty, which we'll talk about in the show, where he was himself broke financially, emotionally, physically, and he worked too hard. And so that's his new mission. And he's now author of several books, including the two that we're going to focus on in this, in this show is Profit First and Clockwork. And what an awesome interview, guys. A real treat. Let's get into it with Mike Mikalowicz. Mike, welcome to your show today. Oh, it's a joy to be here. Michael and Garrett, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, your your book, Profit First, was really important to our business. And the reason was, is every time you read a book that's kind of surprising, you kind of, I mean, I pay attention. And we're definitely going to talk about Profit First and how that's changing businesses as well. But I'd like to hear more about your background. And, and people always talk about their great successes and their keynote speakers and how many yeah. companies you've sold, which you have. But you also had some staggering failures. Give us a little, little bit of background and maybe we'll, we'll poke around the failures a little bit because it, yeah. it seems fun. Yeah, and I think that is way more relevant. So just a couple of the bullet points to set the stage. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I've owned now seven or eight businesses. 
my first two companies, I had two exits, a private equity deal. I was in the IT space. I had a Fortune 500 exit as a, my I had a forensics business that was acquired. I today operate, or I shouldn't say operate, I own five businesses. I'm a shareholder in five businesses, but there's a president for each company. But I think the interesting part of my story, or at least the relevant part, is after selling those businesses, those first two, I was like, oh my God, I am God's gift to entrepreneurship. My ego just exploded because I look how rich I am. And I'm so, I thought it was God's gift to entrepreneurship. And I acted like a total tool. I, I, I bought the houses. I got a place out in Hawaii. We took a sabbatical out there on, on Lanai, one of the smaller islands. Got the cars, everything. And I said, oh, to sustain this new life standard, I need to run another business that is you know, just printing money. So I became an angel investor and I sucked. I actually call myself the angel of death. <laughs> That's the only angel <laughs> part I had going right. Started 10 companies, all of them collapsed. I didn't know what I was doing. They were in disparate fields. I was just throwing good money after bad. And it took me two years. I wiped out everything I had financially. I remember coming home to my wife. We had, we still have three children. We had three children at the time saying, we're going to lose our house. We're going to lose our cars. I've lost it all. And we did. 30 days later, we were out of our house and just lost everything. My daughter, as I was doing this, my daughter was nine years old. I was sobbing. I was so ashamed because I'd been lying to my family by omission saying, yeah, everything's fine. This business is starting to get traction. I wanted to believe that, but it wasn't the reality. And my daughter, she went running out of the room because I told her she couldn't take her horseback riding lessons. $20 a week for a group session. Couldn't afford that. I was broke. And she ran out of the room. I thought she was running away from me. She actually ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And she ran back and, and she said, Daddy, since you can't provide for our family, I'll be our provider. And just uh, oh, think about that. I get emotional over thinking about it right now. That's when I take my final breath on our planet, that's, I know that's the memory I'm going to have. It was so defining. I was so ashamed of myself. I was proud of her. It also became a trigger to redefine everything I knew about entrepreneurship, which was basically nothing. I thought I knew stuff. I was lucky. I didn't know much. And I've endeavored to be an author who studies what makes entrepreneurship successful, what the shortcuts are, the real shortcuts, the stuff that get, brings real results, and apply them in my own businesses. And the last little thing I want to put on that valley, it wasn't like the next morning I woke up after the piggy bank and said, oh, I've got this. I started boozing hard. I went through depression. I struggled for two years deeply, but the seed was planted and finally became clear is that I need to document everything about entrepreneurship that I think I know and challenge it. And uh, maybe 1% of the way through it now, Profit First was one of the things, Clockwork was another, but I, I got a lot more stuff I'm working on to really understand what makes an entrepreneur successful, systematically successful, as opposed to by happenstance. It's interesting. Our stories are actually a little bit a little bit similar. I, I got lucky through a software IPO, put a bunch of money in my pocket. I, it took me longer than two years to lose everything. It took me about five years to grind it in the ground. I almost lost my house. We ended up moving into a smaller house because I yeah. couldn't afford the big house anymore. And yeah. and I th also thought I was a genius. Maybe not, you know, maybe didn't buy all the cars and and you know you were talking about, but but mentally I was definitely the, the genius. And and the yeah. thing is you, you know, you in general, you associate yourself, your identity is so wrapped up in what you do and as a provider for your family. And so when you can't do that, like the one thing you're asked to do, Mike, right? right. The one freaking thing you can do is provide for the family. One thing, one thing. And I couldn't do it. And I remember saying <laughs> right. I would do anything for my family. I'll always it's provide. And 
I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I was so wrapped up in the ego. I thought, I really thought I was a genius. That's something figured out. I had the swagger to my step, but also you know, it was dehumanizing. I was, I was looking at other people saying you're less than me. And I am now I'm grateful. I, I feel my experience was divine intervention that I, I had to learn the greatest lesson in life it, that, that we are all valuable, that we all contribute something. We contribute to different things, but there's no one better or worse. And so it, I, I hope it ripped out of that, that ego out of me. And if it ever, and when it does present itself, if I, I have a big win or something, I can feel building up. I'm like, hold on, let's revisit the piggy bank. And yeah. it keeps me grounded, I hope. Yeah, it definitely keeps you grounded. The same thing it was pretty humiliating when you basically everything you had, including your identity as a provider is taken away. It, it definitely yeah. humbles you. And in, in my case, I was also called to share what worked and didn't work. I just ended up, you know, in real estate, you know, how yeah, do we become financially free? It took me 15 years to figure it out. Now people can do it in, in literally a year. And you said you're 1% there figuring it out. You're kind of chipping away yeah. a little bit here. And, and let's talk about profit first, because it's, it's, it's one of those things, like I said, that kind of, it kind of surprises you a little bit. And I think entrepreneurship is really hard. It really is. And, and what we all do, we can always work harder and we can always invest more in the business. And so we work our tail off and yeah. we never really get paid, okay? Because yeah. we pay everybody else and everything that's left over certainly doesn't come to us because we should most certainly invest it back in the business so we can grow faster. And therefore, the entrepreneurs are basically poor people in many ways, in, in, in many ways. And so when I read your book, I was like, gosh, let's talk about that real quick. What is the, the premise of Profit First and, and why should every entrepreneur you know, care? Well, because so many entrepreneurs struggle. It's funny. I'll show you if I can turn the camera. I don't know if people watching or can watch in, but it says eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. I have that in every working space <laughs> I work. Yeah. That's my, I've defined it as my life's mission. <laughs> to your point, Michael, most entrepreneurs are impoverished financially, time-wise, a combination thereof, soulfully impoverished. We have this vision of what we want and this reality of what we're doing, and they are not the same. And I also believe every entrepreneur should be wildly successful. We are the biggest contributors to society, economically, innovationally, so many ways. So I'm looking at entrepreneurship and uh, I've surveyed people informally and formally who starts a business for financial freedom. And I would say it's over 90% of businesses are started in part or in full for financial freedom. Other people do it for personal freedom. Do what you want when you want. Then I ask people, and I've done the data research too, who is financially free? And of the 9% who want it, maybe 1% is there. And I'm like, this is so confusing. We, we start this with a specific goal in mind, the clear vision, but no one's getting there. What's wrong with us? Like, are we, do we all have a mind warp? And, and I experienced the exact same difficulties. When I was running my businesses, I sold. They weren't profitable. They were break-evens. And I was grateful when someone decided they saw value in it and gave me money for it. So I've been studying it. One day it just flipped in my mind. I said, oh, there's nothing wrong with us. It's a system we're all told to follow. That profit comes last. The foundational formula for profitability is your sales revenue minus your expenses results in profit. And we even call profit the bottom line, the year end. It's all vernacular for saying it's the last consideration. And it's the human behavior that when something comes last, it means it's not important now. It's the manana syndrome. So most businesses say, yeah, not profitable this year. That sucks. Next year, I'm going to be profitable. And when we're not, it's the kick the can down the road syndrome. But we all pay expenses. Our expenses keep growing and growing because that is prioritized. Expenses comes before profit. In Profit First, I teach the method of flipping the formula. You have your sales, your revenue. Then you subtract a profit you've determined you want to take. And that will result in what's available for expenses. 
So it's the pay yourself first principle basically applied to business. And that's how we become permanently profitable. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you and set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. I love that. And it's, and you're right. You're, you're always, expenses keep growing and you never yeah. seem to turn the corner. And you're yeah. like, well, you can change it. You literally have the ability to change it. Easily. And, uh, so there's this thing called Parkinson's law. So all the work I do is rooted in behavioral psychology. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not certified, accredited, degreed in this, but I'm really fascinated about our mind operation. If we can understand how it's working, we can probably channel the outcomes we want. And uh, one of the big behaviors is a concept called Parkinson's law. Parkinson was a theorist in the 1950s studying human behavior and noticed that as a supply increases, we consume more. I just had a uh, lunch and we had some sushi here in the office and I got three rolls instead of my usual two. Well, guess what? I ate three rolls. The, the, the more a resource is available, the more we consume. The more time we're given to work on an agreement, it takes us longer to get that agreement done. Now, the thing is with money too, and you may see this, it's almost uncanny. As you watch your revenue increase, Garrett and, and Michael, as you see your revenue increasing, it's almost uncanny over time, our expenses increase almost at the exact same rate. And we're like, what's going on? How come I can't ever break to profit? And the reason is the psychology of Parkinson's law. The more resources available, the more we'll subconsciously consume. It's automatic. We have more money, we'll find ways to spend it and justify it. If we take our profit first, it intercepts that Parkinson's law behavior. And now we see less money flowing through the business and we adjust again automatically to what's truly available since profit's been taken first. So how much should you should you dump back into the business, if at all, to, to help grow it? What is that? Yeah. Is there a calculation behind that inside your book? Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, I, I studied businesses of different size, micro business, $250,000 in revenue or less, standardized small business, 5 billion or less, larger small business, 50 million or less, and found that at different sizes, typically the optimal profit percentage can change. But the lesson is this, we need to take a percentage of profit starting immediately. And if you've never historically had a cash profit distribution, and this is above a normalized salary. So for the work I do say, if I had to replace myself, it would cost $150,000 annually. That's my normalized salary. I need to receive that as a salary. Profit is above and beyond that. Some people cheat and say, well, I'm going to pay myself $20,000 this year, but I have this rest of this money left over as profit. No, no, that really should have been your salary. Profit in the traditional definition is cash resources available for the distribution to the shareholder, the person who owns the business, or is reserved in a cash equity position to ultimately be distributed to the shareholder. So it's a shareholder benefit. So start off, if you've never had profit, start off with 1%. And I would say every quarter, keep growing that two, three, 4% and see what your threshold is. Now, there's another component. We mistakenly, and I thought it was true, that the more money we plow back into the business, the faster we grow. And it's actually the inverse, which is shocking to me. It ends up the less money we put into the business in, in our case studies. We, by the way, we, we have over 700,000 deployments of profit first. We have tons of case studies. The less people put back into their business, they grow faster because they become more innovative. They start challenging the industry norms. They become frugal. 
that's forced frugality. How do I get the same result with less money? And once you figure it out, because you're forced to, then you start doubling down on that. I can get bigger results with less input. I was an investor in a leather manufacturing company. That I did exit from that one also. That was more recent. And uh, we were looking at our, our capital expense account. That's part of profit first. You could have multiple accounts. And we figured we need this thing called a molding press. And they can cost minimally $25,000 and up. And we need this to form the leather. And we said, well, let's just grab this small morsel of cash we have reserved in the CapEx account. It was about $1,000. And what could we do for $1,000? Well, we went to a Home Depot. We went to the you know the blue ribbon discount, or they call it. We got a microwave oven. I'll never forget that. Some other things and started playing around. The lesson here and is don't microwave leather, by the way. That's that doesn't work. But we did find a way of applying heat in a unique fashion that made leather moldable, and you can use what's called a hand press just as quickly. We found a solution that gives just as a good molding or formation that they use these big $25,000 presses for, for a cost of about $250. And that became our standard. So our competition is saying to grow, you got to invest, you got to invest. And they're buying these big clickers. We said to grow, you got to be innovative. And we found a way to do it that as of now, I don't think anyone else. But what about, done. what about payroll? So our goal is to eventually end up in the owner's box of the business and not have to work as much in the day-to-day. Right. Totally. And so step outside of that, you need someone to take over like key roles inside the company. Sure. Where sure. does that line get drawn? So that's an OPEX. So there's five fundamental accounts in Profit First, and we can add to it. The, the starting account is called income. It's a depository only account. Any money that flows into the business goes there first. Thanksgiving just passed as we're recording this. And you know what we did, we had 10 guests over, we carved up the turkey. When the turkey was delivered or put on the, on the stove, I didn't say to everyone, hey, everyone for yourself, fight for it. I carve it so everyone gets a piece of it. When money flows into our business, say we get a $1,000 deposit, it does not mean we have $1,000. We have a $1,000 cash turkey that needs to be carved up. The other four accounts are profit. That's a reward for shareholders starting and investing in the business. Owner's comp, that's compensation for usually the most important employee when you're an owner operator. Taxes. The biggest bill associated with operating a business that business owners are least prepared for is the tax bill. Your business, regardless of formation, could be S Corp, C Corp, LLP, LLC, your business can always pay your taxes. Just talk with a tax advisor. Sometimes you do what's called direct distributions to the government. Other times you do distribution reimbursements to the owner who's had taxes taken out of their paycheck. And then you have OPEX. OPEX is what's available to fuel the business. And so when $1,000 comes in, after you do all of this carving of the turkey, you may find you have $600 to operate the business. And embedded in there is the employee payroll. Now, when we do advanced deployments for profit first, we may end up with six or seven accounts. We may have an OPEX account and a sub-account called employee payroll. And then we transfer money in there. We may have one for capital expenditures, not too common in real estate, but you could have that where you need to buy equipment. We allocate money there. Yeah, what I like about this is that you're treating profit as an expense. And it's, and it's not in fifth, fourth in line. It's like first in line. The first thing you do, it's almost like tithing or saving, right? You take that those things exactly out first. Same. And, and essentially, that leaves money left over to operate with. And if you don't have money to operate with, you're going to have to figure something out. Back to the Parkinson's rule, right? If you have money in there, you're going to spend it. And a profit first system puts a finite number in that account. And you're looking at it and go, okay, I can spend that account. I've already taken all the other stuff out. And, and this is critical, I think, what I think what real estate investors don't understand, especially once they've done their first deal. And these are large buildings that we syndicate, yeah. right? 
we very quickly are operating multi-million dollar businesses and you have to run it as a business. You're no longer really a real estate investor per se, you're running a business. So running your cash flow in the way you described is, is absolutely critical. Now, I think one of the things that Garrett was saying is one of the things we want is financial freedom. Yeah. We want time freedom. We want personal freedom. And sometimes what we find is when we make a transition from a W-2 job to self-employed, you actually work harder and you you kind of create this this hamster wheel for yourself. And it's almost worse than having a job that you can leave yeah. at five o'clock and, and be yeah. done with. And so you know, in your other book, Clockwork, let's talk about that, because in there yeah. you talk about how a business can start running itself. And that's yeah. kind of closer to what Garrett's talking about and that we're all striving to where you you kind of break that that ball and chain at one point from your business, there's clearly a startup phase where you can't hire, you don't have the money to hire correct, a correct. president. You are the resource. Okay. You're going to have to bootstrap a little bit unless you bring in outside capital. But but what does that look like? What do you write about in Clockwork that can really help someone run their business better? Yeah, here's a line to remember or underline. The number one job of an entrepreneur is not to do the job, but to be a creator of jobs. And I think we've conflated that there's a lot of pundits who say entrepreneurship is about hustle and grind. It was never about that. It's always been about having a vision, taking the risk to make that vision become a reality. And it's usually through the coordination, the choreographing of resources, people, technology, tools to get there. But it's become bastardized to say, just work harder and harder, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your life. Never intended that way. So I'm trying to kind of correct that course back to what we originally intended. Our job is not to do the job, it's to create jobs. Now, to give you an example, I travel a lot for public speaking. I'm literally flying out right after this for an event. And it's it's the greatest blessing and joy of my life. Admittedly, when I travel, sometimes a McDonald's is just a little too convenient and I stop by. Well, over the last few years, I've stopped by now 52 or 53 McDonald's. I'm asking the same question over and over. Uh, and literally just about two weeks ago, I did this again. I go to the cashier, I'll order whatever, and I'll say, hey, do you mind if I speak with the owner real quick? I just want to understand a little bit about the operations of the business. There has not been one instance, not one, when the owner's there. I remember a couple of specific ones. One time, the cashier said, I've never seen the owner before. <laughs> Another one, someone said, oh yeah, the owner, they come in once a month to pick up the money. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And one dude, the dude I spoke to last night said, how long have you worked here? 15 years at McDonald's. Nicest guy. He says, yeah, the owner comes in every so often, but they surely don't flip burgers or cook the fries. Now, all of us know that the McDonald's owner isn't just sitting on the beach drinking Mai Tais and beers. Maybe. The business owner is likely thinking on much more strategic things. How do I acquire more property? How do we work with corporate more hand in hand? But they surely don't go to the line and start working it. And that's our job too. If we're doing the work, we're preventing ourselves from thinking strategically. We're not envisioning where it goes. And it's a real simple cop-out because it feels productive. I, I grounded out today again, and I grounded out again, and yet again. And every day we keep doing this. So in the day, we feel rewarded because we grounded out. In the long term, we feel we're never making progress because we're not. Mm -hmm. the, the last analogy I want to share, recently I got into watching chess online, not because I like chess. I'm just fascinated about the public's response. If you ever watch a chess match, you'll see two chess players going at it, and the dude's like rubbing his temples. He's staring at the board. He's tapping his head for about five minutes. And finally, after five minutes, he takes one piece, the rook or something, picks it up, moves it one square and puts it down. And the crowd loses their shit. Like, <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's the best. <laughs> we are rewarding the five minutes of thought. But in business, it's the reverse. If a business owner sits there in his office and 
top of his head and what should we do and thoughts. God forbid you twiddle your thumbs in thought. You're, you're spit out. You need to hustle and grind. You need to work ridiculous hours. Do, do, do. Chess masters know it's about the strategic move and entrepreneurs need to know it's about strategic moves, not being the rook or the pawn yourself. Yeah. So the question is, how do you do it? Right. I mean, that, that is, I mean, it's, it is a mindset and everything yeah. starts with mindset, right? I mean, the idea that you don't need to grind it out, that you should sit there and quote, twiddle your thumbs. You're right. We don't do that as entrepreneurs enough, but there's a reality, yeah. like what Garrett is saying, if I want to replace myself and so I can twiddle my thumbs, I need a certain amount of revenue coming in. Now, what is kind of the pathway to kind of getting to that point? Yeah. We're, we're sort of the end in mind and we're reversed from it. Yeah. So very important. We, yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to declare a four week vacation. And I don't suggest you do this tomorrow, but 18 months from now, a year and a half, optimally, maybe even a year, two years maximally. But so let's say a year and a half from now, go on your calendar today and block out four weeks. For most entrepreneurs that I ask to do this, they say, no way, could I ever do that? Well, there you're already indicating there's a massive problem. I'm affording you time so that we can fix the problem. For many people that do commit to it, their heart starts racing and say, I got to stop doing, I need to start figuring out how not to be here. Now, let me tell you why I picked four weeks. We studied our company here. We studied about a thousand companies and discovered, actually it was almost hundred percent. I was just shy, about 98%, 99.8% of businesses run in monthly cycles, attracting new clients or prospects, hiring or firing, close out month end on a monthly sequence. We do all this monthly. Therefore, the conclusion was, if an owner can be extracted from a business for four consecutive weeks without any access to the business, and the business continues on successfully in their absence, it can likely live on into perpetuity in their absence. So this four-week test is the ultimate acid test. Now, I've been doing this myself. I'm actually taking my next fortification starting next week. I'm leaving until mid-January and or, or early January. But what I found is there's a couple impedances. One is people say, well, I can't do it because it depends on me. Okay, great. That's what we're trying to fix. We need to start delegating work to other people. We need to put systems in place. That's our job now. The second thing is they say, I don't want to have my employees working their tails off in a sweatshop, carrying the load while, while I'm off, you know, celebrating off of their sweat. And that's a misperception. That was my mm -hmm. fear. I found, I, I have 22 employees, so we're like a super small company. But with my colleagues here, as I talked to them, and I said, hey, I'm leaving. They said, you trust us? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, wow. It was the ultimate empowerment move. Kelsey stepped up and now is president of our company. She, she runs the organization. Everyone else stepped up in different ways and said, gosh, I have control. I have trust. You've given us the keys to, of the kingdom. The other part, though, and this was the biggest challenge, was my own big fat ego. I didn't expect this. I remember my first four-week vacation, maybe six years ago, I went to Perth, Australia. I'm in Australia. And I'm sitting there, it's like day three. And I'm like, oh gosh, what do I do? Well, let me check in with email, which is a big no-no, but I did anyway. And I checked in and there was not a single message. And then the sweat came down. I'm like, two things. One, we're out of business and everyone's just abandoned me or <laughs> they don't need me. And the worst was they don't need me. Like I was terrified they didn't need me. So I started emailing, what's going on? I need these reports, team engaged. I came back after that first fortification and said, how'd it go? And they said, Mike, you said you believed in us. You said you're empowering us, but you demonstrated you didn't trust us. Oh. It was a punch to my throat, but I deserved it. And subsequently, I got over that. The last little caveat here is I had what I call the superhero syndrome. I, as a business owner, could swoop in and fix anything. I had to move to something that still satisfies my ego, but removes my impedances in the business. 
super visionary. I said, I have a clear vision of where I want to move this business. I'm going to empower the team to march toward that collectively. I'm going to learn from them, but I'm going to keep on saying the vision. I'm going to be the chess player. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff, Mike. And it, and it is start mindset and you're shifting people's minds, thinking around things that they don't think are possible. And I love this because when you schedule four weeks in a few, in eight, you have 18 months to get your yeah. ducks in a row. It forces you to figure out how you can extract yourself, right? It, fo- yeah. it forces and, you and to you run tests. So it's not like in, you're going to go in 18 months out for four weeks. You run the one week test. You yeah. just leave and you come back. And anyone yeah. can leave for a week and feel comfortable. And then whatever didn't work, that's what needs to be systematized or improved yeah. or, or, or buttressed in some way. And then you do the two-week test and then the three-week test. And then you do this habitual four-week test. All I right, so you did a nine-weeker last year. You're working yourself up to four weeks. You don't just go cold turkey in 18 months. You maybe do a week and say six months or something like that. You, 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 you stepping stones to that point. That's right. And, yeah. and here's the thing. If you don't schedule the four-week vacation, it's going to happen. It's just the question, are you going to choose it to happen or is it going to be forced upon you? Someone's going to die. Someone's going to get sick. Life circumstances are going to present themselves and you're going to have to be removed from the business. And if you haven't prepared for this, you're in trouble. When, when I went to grade school, you guys probably too, we had this, those stupid fire alarm drills. Second grade stand up, the alarm goes off, march in single file, go outside the building. And we did this over and over again. Well, in seventh grade, we had a fire. And guess what? No one got hurt. Everyone stood up. We all marched out and everyone was fine because we had rehearsed for it. The four-week vacation is a rehearsal. Last thing I want to share, Kelsey, our president, came to me, this is now two years ago, maybe it was three, and said, hey, the four-week vacation is working so well for you. Our team is now empowered. We all need to take a four-week vacation. And I was like, are you kidding me? She goes, no. She goes, we need, for example, we have a copywriter here, Jenna. If Jenna leaves, out goes the door, is all our copywriting. Let's have Jenna take a four-week vacation so she has to have redundancy for her. We have a designer here, Izzy. She has a backup. Jeremy does our social media videos and stuff. Everyone has now these backups and we test every year because they leave for four weeks. The backups are now fulfilling those roles. And so now I feel comfortable that if any of my colleagues leave because a great opportunity presents themselves or life circumstances happen, that we have the redundancy to continue on unabated. That's crazy stuff. Mike, I love all these crazy ideas you have, which are not so crazy. They're really, really useful. How can people connect with you and find out more about you and what you have to offer? Well, you can go to my website, mikemichalowitz.com, but no one can spell it. So here's the shortcut, Mike Motorbike. <laughs> it's a nickname from grade school. It's the only G-rated nickname I've ever had. <laughs> so you can go to Mike Motorbike as a motorcycle, motorbike.com. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. Those articles are up there. All my books, you can get free chapter downloads of a podcast too, mikemotorbike.com. Awesome. Check it out, mikemotorbike.com. Mike, it's been awesome. Thanks for hanging out with us. Michael Garrett. Thanks, guys. So I love what he said about entrepreneurs, their our job is not to do the job, but to create jobs. I love that. Yeah. Especially now, I think I re- that resonates a lot with, with me and in general. And I, a common, like maybe initially when I was getting into the interview, I'm like, okay, yeah, take profit, but also, you know, you want to pour that into the business. And he's like, essentially in payroll, I was like, okay, well, what's payroll? How does that play into it? And you know, his answer of saying that that was an OPEX expense, I, I really, you know, agree with that and resonate with that. And I think right away, I was like, hey, you want to be in what's called the owner's box, which means that you're removed from the business. When you're fully in the owner's box, you really don't have a lot, except you're you're making strategic moves up top. And uh, that still fits into his model, which is really cool because he's basically taking profit and treating it as, as an expense, which really is is brilliant. 
That is brilliant. That is brilliant. The other thing that I thought was brilliant was this idea of a four-week vacation. Now, I make it a point to take a four-week vacation every single year, typically on the beach, because I don't live on the beach during the year, so I get my beach time. But it's not really what he was talking about. So when I when I do a vacation, I will still do emails in the morning, and then I'll do internal calls. I won't do any external calls and podcasts, so I, I, I do a hybrid, but it's not what he was talking about. What he was talking about is cold turkey, where you're basically not to do anything at all. You have hand the keys over to your team and you leave. Wow, that changes things. So I just actually took a trip, my first trip in really four years outside of the country in a major way. And I, so I was gone for, I don't know, I think 11 days total. And I timed it up so that it was over Thanksgiving so that you know three of those days were really kind of burner days anyways. And one of the things that he mentioned was within that, four-week period, if you really do actually do and execute it and do nothing, you build trust with them. And and it triggered something in my head. I remember on Monday of last week, I was like answering emails and and our asset manager was like, I got this. Yeah, like, I love that. I'm good. And so I was like, shoot, I bet you in that moment, she was like, hey, he doesn't trust me that I can handle this when he's gone. Good point. Right. And so, you know, I now feel stupid mm. even answering those emails. And I took the I took the read on that a little bit actually in the beginning of the week. And and towards the end of the week, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna kind of sit back, not think about it for a minute. And I did make that kind of redirection, but it just came rushing back to me like, shoot, you know, that is a mistake that you make. And really you can build trust in your team by stepping back as long as long as things don't completely fall apart. That's a good point. You think you're doing the right thing and then you think about it, especially in, in having talked to, talk to Mike, and you're like, man, I actually disempowered this, this person, right? I actually communicate to them. I don't trust them. And that's not what we want to do. We want to do the exact opposite. But I love books like that. Profit First is probably one of my top 10 favorite books because it's so actionable and applicable. So definitely if you are running your business or you're starting your business, any size, you've got to do it right. It's not like you do this like in three years when you have a certain size. You've got to, it's easier to do right up front, build a system right up front. And same with his book, Clockwork, which I will be reading, you know, in full, you know, after the show is how can you build that into your business as well? And I, I, I think you're right, Garrett. It's been very empowering for us when we decided to bring on the right staff to operate specifically the portfolio, right? And the way that we really want to operate. And we were doing pretty good before, but it was always a lot of work for the partners, especially in, in the team and stressing out the team. And so and so this is just, you know, making the investment sooner is probably a smart thing. And probably everybody listening to this probably should make investments sooner. It's a mistake that we all make. And we learn apparently very slowly. But if you don't want to operate your own syndication business, which is totally fine, then consider investing in ours. Our investment company is called Nighthawk Equity. You can find out more about nighthawkequity.com and you can click a button and schedule a call with us and we'd love to have a conversation. We're, we're hunting. We got a, a new acquisitions guy who's crushing it for Garrett and taking some work off of him and, and all the action is, is in the off-market deals right now. There's really nothing on market anymore and so we're getting some, some good deal flow. So check us out and consider investing with us at nighthawkequity.com. So with that, check out Mike's two books at least and use that as you grow your own syndication business. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, 
Head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.